Good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's so great to see all of you here this morning. For those of you that don't know me, I'm Russell Horner. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege to be able to preach. But before I do that, we have something special today. We want to call up Kaya and Lauren, as well as the elders and the deacons. Would you guys come up here? We want to pray for them before they're sent off to Radius, which is next week. I'm sure most of you recognize these young ladies. They've faithfully served at Sovereign Grace for so many years, probably held almost all of your kids in their hands at one point. So it's just so encouraging to see them take the step of faith and to follow in God's calling for them to go to Radius and study. And so we want to pray for them and send them off. We're sad to see them go, but we're excited to see how God will use them. So let's pray for them as they go off to Radius to study. Yep, this is a great privilege. Let me pray. Father, we praise you, knowing that we were a people that were once far off from you, that you have brought us near and reconciled us to yourself as sons and daughters through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of your son, Jesus. And we rest fully in that, knowing that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that your great name will be exalted above all the earth, and that you will be made known and glorified to all nations, peoples, tongues, and tribes. And Father, we look forward with excitement to how you will use Lauren and Kaya in that work. And Lord, we pray for them this morning, asking that you would be with them, that you would give them peace as they leave their home and their family, head down to Radius, that you would strengthen them and give them perseverance as they spend this year learning and growing and being pushed out of their comfort zones. Lord, we pray that during this year that you will prepare them and equip them to take the gospel to peoples that have no access to or have ever heard the name of Jesus. And Father, we pray for those lost, that they would be brought near to you and reconciled as sons and daughters as well. Lord, we pray for our church this morning, asking that you would help us to remain faithful and caring for Lauren and Kaya, that you would help us to support them and encourage them well, and that we would pray for them without ceasing. Lord, we just pray for your blessing upon them as they go and ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. What a blessing it is to be able to do that. Well, if you're new to Sovereign Grace, you just caught a treat. We don't get to do that every Sunday. It's such a joy to be able to do that. So let's get into God's word. Psalm 119, verses 145 to 152. We are in the cough stanza, the 19th stanza, the cough stanza. It's hard to believe that we're almost done with this psalm. It's been such a blessing in so many ways. And this stanza in particular will be a blessing to us. We've talked about God's wonderful word and God's righteous word. This week, the focus will again be on God's word, but how to commune with God through his word. So let's read God's word together, starting in verse 145. With my whole heart, I cry, answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Let me pray. Father, what a blessing it is to draw near every week through your word. 
I'm so thankful for how your spirit uses your word to convict, to encourage, to strengthen, to help us to draw near to you. We know that's only possible because Christ has drawn near to us even while we were still sinners. So we rejoice in the work of your son that it is finished in him. And we come as your children, eager and needy for you to work in our lives. Father, we draw near in Christ. Please draw near to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, many of you may remember Randy Martin or knew Randy Martin. He just moved away recently in COVID. Randy was a teacher at Bakersfield Christian High School and also a pastor at Providence Reformed Church, which has been meeting in our office for years now. Well, I had the privilege of working with Randy for about 10 years at BCHS. I love Randy. He's a great guy. I've learned so much from him. But as I was studying the passage this week, he kept coming to mind. In fact, one of the things he would often say to students or in chapels or just in casual conversations, it kept coming back to my mind. Randy would often say things like this, trials expose character. They expose what's really going on in our hearts for good or bad. And he would always say, you can tell a lot about a person by the way they respond to trials. That's so true, isn't it? You tell so much about people by the way they respond to difficulties. And so I ask you, how do you respond to trials? How do you respond when the things in your life turn south? What's your instinct? What's your MO? What do you do when things go bad? Do you try to ignore it? Kind of just push it aside, act like it's no big deal? Maybe that out of sight, out of mind mentality? Is that your normal response? Or do you go into escape mode? Pull a Jonah, call a travel agent. (laughs) Get as far away from California as you possibly can or maybe as far away from the church as you possibly can, because you can't stand to look the people in the face that you've sinned against. But you know you don't have to run to escape. You could run to substance abuse or entertainment. You could consume yourself in your work, in your kids. It can be another form of escape. Do you go into victim mode? Do you just blame everyone around you, like in the garden, pointing fingers at everybody you can? You point at everybody else except yourself, and you want the whole world to know how you have been sinned against, constantly whining and complaining, demanding rules that need to be changed and leaders that need to be changed so the whole world revolves around you? Or do you go into solve it mode, like I so sadly do, where you prioritize and you strategize, you come up with a plan of action, you come up with a checklist, make a list of all the things you have to do to fix your problems, and you get such satisfaction of checking things off that list. Almost as if you believe that if you just had the right resources or the right strategies or the right approach to this difficulty, then you can handle it all on your own. Now, sadly, I'm sure each of us can relate to at least one of these sinful responses. I know I can relate to all of them. Those are really easy to come up with. But what I'm most interested in this morning is what these responses reveal about our hearts, what they truly reveal about us. And I think each of these responses really reveal one thing, the same thing. That we so often believe the lie that we are alone in our suffering. That we are on our own in our trials. God's not coming to the rescue. God doesn't have our back. We have to fix and cope and deal with sin and struggles and difficulties all on our own. It's the same lie we were told in the garden, isn't it? God's not looking out for you. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. He's a miser. He's holding out. You have to take care of yourself. But if we've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, nothing could be further from the truth. God has saved us and rescued us from sin and struggles in this world. And he draws near in the valley of the shadow of death to comfort and care in the midst of that. We can so often forget that. 
Which is why we need texts like this morning that will remind us that God is near. In fact, if you want to summarize this whole stanza, I think James does an excellent job in James 4.8 when he gives this promise. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. The first half, the first four verses here, 145 to 148, are all about us drawing near to God. In the second half, 149 to 152, about God drawing near to us. And so as we look at verse 145, and us drawing near to God, you need to know in this section, David answers three questions about us drawing near. He talks about the how, the when, and the why. How do we draw near? When do we draw near to God? And why we draw near? So let's look at 145 together on how we draw near to God. Verse 145. With my whole heart I cry, I call. This is this Hebrew word, karah. It's used twice in the first few verses. It's often used just to call out in Scripture, especially to call out to the Lord in prayer. But you can tell this is anything but just this casual, hey, hi, how you doing? It's not what's going on at all. You can see in the context. This is not just throwing up a prayer to the big guy before a meal. There's an urgency to this. Look at verse 145. With my whole heart, my whole heart, all my being, I cry. Answer me. Answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. David is desperate. He's dependent on God. He's calling out for help. And it's even elevated more by the next verse. Look at 146 together. I call to you, that cry again, for what? To save me, rescue me, revive me, set me free, that I may observe your testimonies. David's desperate, isn't he? Supremely desperate here. He's acknowledging his great dependence on God. Look, if your parents here, or even if your kids or watch, you know, parents, you get this, don't you? You get this kind of cry. We get that one cry all day long. Mom, Dad, look at this. Check this out. Look at this. Watch me do this, right? That's not this kind of cry. We love those kind of cries. This is the other kind of cry, that blood-curdling scream where it seems like your child's arm has been cut off when they got a paper cut. That just terrifying scream where they fly through the house mowing down everyone and everything in their way looking for Mom and Dad, and they will not be satisfied until they're in the arms of their parents. Why do kids do that? Why do they do that? Why do they run to us like that? Well, I believe they're saying something, whether they know it or not, very important about themselves. They know they're weak, they're needy, and they do not have the resources to meet their own needs. And they believe that we love them enough, we care for them enough, and have the resources to help to meet their greatest needs. And so when they run to us, it's a big vote of confidence in us, isn't it? It shows us what they really believe about us. Isn't that true for us with God as well? When we run to the world for help in time of need, when we run to these escapes or we run to ourself and depend on ourself, we're not acknowledging that we have a heavenly father who loves us. We're actually acting like orphans. Like we have to fend for ourselves because God is not coming to the rescue. And sadly, in our fallen state, that's not far from the truth, is it? We have rejected our father. We've rebelled against his law. We have voluntarily made ourselves orphans, walking away from God. But Christ, in his finished work, his life, death, and resurrection, has brought us back to God, back to our Heavenly Father, reconciled us to him by faith so that we don't have to run to the world because we are adopted into the family of God forever. 
because of Jesus' work. We don't have to fend for ourselves. We can run to God like David here, weak and needy, confident that God loves us because we see it in Christ and knowing that God has every resource that we could possibly need to help with our greatest need. Because as Luke 11 tells us, he is a good father who delights in giving good gifts to his children. And so David cries out this desperate, dependent cry. That's how we draw near to God. Now let's look at verse 147 with the when. When do we draw near to God? Verse 147. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. So David's still crying out to God here. But there's a new kind of desperation. It's even elevated further because now he's sacrificing sleep for this. If you're like me, you read this and be like, oh no, please not. I like my sleep. I don't want to do this. David's sacrificing his mornings. He's getting up before the dawn to draw near to God. In fact, notice it's not just the first thing he does in the day when you roll out of bed. This is the very reason he gets up, to pray, to draw near to God. That's how desperate he is for God. And as Jordan read earlier, he meditates on God's word both night and day, as Psalm 1 says, because look at in the evenings, he does the same thing. Verse 148, my eyes are awake before the watches of the night, long into the night, that I may meditate on your promise. I hope you can see what David's saying here. He's not just losing sleep in the morning, he's losing sleep at night. When he wakes up at night, anxious and worried about what the next day holds for him. He doesn't just roll over and fall asleep. He draws near to God in prayer because he's that desperate. David's not saying, I pray all day long. He's saying, I pray beyond the day, beyond the time that most people are awake. Before the sun up, after sundown, I'm in prayer. That's how desperate I am. I'm drawing near to God as much as humanly possible because I'm dependent on him for everything. I don't know about you, but these verses, specifically this set, really convicted me. It cut me to the heart this week because I have always struggled with prayer. I've had an inconsistent prayer life my whole life. and I've battled and and done so many things, and I've always told myself, look, if I just had more time, if I was just more disciplined, more organized, if I had a better plan, or if I get rid of some of my distractions, then I can pray like this. Then I can pray consistently for people and constantly throughout the day. But when I read verses like this, I realize it's not a lack of discipline or planning or so many distractions that keep me from prayer. It's pride. It's foolish, stubborn pride that keeps me from prayer because I really believe that I can handle things on my own. I actually have time to pray. We actually have time to pray. But we fill it with so many trivial, useless things. And I'm not trying to say sleep is trivial. We need sleep. That's actually the point. David is willing to sacrifice something essential to draw near to God in prayer. And we barely want to give up any of our trivial things because we don't realize how much we need God. You see, what really drives a prayerful life is a humility, a dependence on God, a desperation for God. David recognizes without God sustaining his every breath, his every step, he's finished. And so he draws near to God, not because he's disciplined, Not because he feels like it or just has all this free time. He draws near to God because he's desperate. Desperate for God to work in his life, just as we should be. Now you may have noticed I skipped the end of these verses. That was intentional. You were probably freaking out, thinking, oh no, he's lost it. The beginning of the verse is all about the how 
and the wind. The end of these four verses tell us the why, why we draw near to God. So go back with me to 145, as David shows us the why. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. Why is that? That I might be comfortable. It doesn't say that. That I might be happy. That I might have relief from my continuous pain. That I might have a break from these constant difficult relationships. That I might have a better life. That my troubles might be a little lighter. David doesn't say any of that. He's desperate for something totally different, isn't he? What's he desperate for? Verse 145. That I will keep your statutes. 146. I call to you, save me. Why? That I may observe your testimonies. David is desperate for holiness more than anything else. Oh, he's desperate to be heard. But what he wants more than being heard is to be holy. What he wants is to be free of sin, not just free of troubles. And so he begs God, hear me, save me, that I might keep your statutes, that I might observe your testimonies. Now, how does that actually happen? What's the means by which God makes us holy? We'll keep reading, verse 147. I rise before dawn and cry for help. Why? To hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night. Why? That I may meditate on your promise. I hope you can see what David is driving at here. He's desperate to draw near to God. He's desperate to be holy. He cries out, God, save me, that I could be holy, that I could observe your commandments. But he recognizes that the only way for that to happen in his life is if he draws near to God through his word, by his word. The word of God is fueling his obedience. It's fueling his drive and his hunger for God himself. I almost entitled this entire sermon, Draw Near to God Through the Word, and He Will Draw Near to You Through the Word. That's how important it is to us. It's so important we get this because we'll miss this in so many places. We can try to draw near to God through experiences, whether they be mystical experiences, you know, like a burning in the bosom or visions or whatever they might be. Or maybe we try to draw near to God through emotions. And feelings, we feel like we're near God when the pastor shares a heartwarming story. When the worship band starts rocking out, we really feel it. Jordan's just going to town on that. That's not going to happen, but we get the point. Sometimes we think, now I'm close to God. We also can't draw near to God by emptying ourselves. David says he meditates. Well, in the Eastern religions, it's meditation is all about emptying yourself. You come home from a stressful day, you just have to empty yourself of your stress. Find your center. Don't think this doesn't leak into the church, by the way. I've seen it in so many places, but the Christian faith is the exact opposite. We don't empty ourselves, we fill ourselves with God's word. We meditate on it, we chew on it, we memorize it. We do it in such a way where it dwells in us until it gives us hope until it gives us faith, until it gives us delight in God's word. And once God brings that delight, it fuels our obedience. It fuels our holiness. That's why David says, I'm willing to sacrifice sleep, to meditate, to hope in God's word, so I can draw near to God through his word to be holy. Now, so how would God respond to this? We've seen this picture that David's given us, drawing near to God through his word in prayer. How does God draw near to us? That's the second half of these verses here. And you need to know, these four verses, they're interesting because they're a little bit out of order in my opinion in some ways. It feels like that. 
Because David's main point is in verse 151. God does draw near. But instead of going right to that, when all this tension's happening in his life, he's going to set it in contrast. He's going to talk about a different nearness first so that we can see how wonderful it is that God is near. So go to verse 150 as we see the nearness of evil people. Verse 150. They draw near who persecute me. Once again, David's enemies closing in, surrounding him, drawing near. That's why his prayers were so urgent. That's why he's begging God for help because if God doesn't show up soon, David's done. He's a goner. We don't know who exactly these people are. It could be in David's life, maybe Saul, Absalom. Most likely by the context of this psalm, it's those same double-minded people of God that are rebelling against God and his law that are coming against David to harm him. We know that a little bit because of the way they're described. Look at the rest of verse 150. They draw near, how? With an evil purpose, with a destructive purpose. What's at the heart of that? They are far from your law. These are people in rebellion against God's law, people that should know better, people that should be drawing near to God like David, but instead they're pulling away from God, away from his law, and as they push God away, they're drawing near to the people of God to destroy them, to harm them. We get this, don't we? This is so true in our world. We have enemies. We will be persecuted. Jesus has promised us this. John 15, 20, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. And I know we're always shocked by this, but this does happen in the church. Among God's covenant people, there's division and dissension and gossip and slander. Just look at Paul's letters and try to deny that. Just look around at churches, even during COVID, tearing each other apart over mass. Sadly, as people draw away from God and his law, they draw near to the church to harm them. We shouldn't be surprised by this. Evidence is all around us. We also shouldn't be overwhelmed on this. When evil seems to be drawing in, when evil seems to be just spilling out of our own heart, it should not overwhelm us at the end of the day because we can still have hope. Why is that? Because God is nearer. God is closer than our enemies than sin could ever be. Look at verse 151. But you are near, O Lord. Not you will be near. Not you're, you're coming closer because I'm in trouble. You are already there. I love that David put verse 150 in there because he's not trying to deny his troubles, is he? He's acknowledging his troubles are there. He's not pushing them aside like they don't matter. He's just trying to put his troubles into perspective. He's trying to say, yes, they're drawing in for harm, but this is being overshadowed by the greater truth that God is near me. Even as evil draws near, God is nearer to his people. Now, what does that mean, though, exactly? God's nearness. What is David talking about when he said God is near? Because in some sense, I'm sure some of us could say, well, isn't God near to all of us? He's omnipresent. He's everywhere present with his whole being. He's active, he's involved in this world. He's guiding the king's heart like a stream of water, Proverbs 21 says. So God is always at work, he's always around us, so he's near in that sense. That's true, he is omnipresent, he is sovereign. And that's a great comfort to us, but that's not the nearness that David is really trying to emphasize here. This is a different kind of nearness, a covenantal nearness, a relational nearness. Now how do I know that? Look at verse 149. Hear my voice, according to your steadfast 
love, your hesed, your loyal love, your loving kindness, your covenantal love. This is how God draws near to his people. Not on the basis of their works, their status, their potential, on the basis of his character alone. I am so grateful that David did not say in this verse, draw near to me, answer me, hear me, because I've drawn near to you, because I've been earnest, because I've been drawing near to you with my whole heart. Hear me, Lord, I've been doing this night and day. I'm meditating on your word. I'm losing sleep. That has to count for something. You owe me. David doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say any of that. Because he knows his standing before God is not based on his drawing near, but on the steadfast love of God. He recognizes that he's a sinner, and he can do nothing, nothing to fix that. As we sang this earlier, Rock of Ages, not the labors of my hands, can fulfill thy law's commands. My hands can't do it. Could my zeal, my passion, no respite, no. Could my tears, my sorrow for sin forever flow? All for sin could not atone. It's not enough to make me right with God. What has to happen? Thou must save, and thou alone. God, you have to draw near in your steadfast love for me to even come close to you. And that's exactly what happened in Jesus, isn't it? Romans 5, verse 6 While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows us his love, his steadfast love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is the embodiment of God's nearness. He became one of us. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. And he became one of us to live the life we failed to live. To live perfectly in our place. So when he goes to the cross and dies for sin, he pays our debt in full. And when he raises from the dead, conquering sin and death, we too have victory over death in him, by faith in him. We can be forgiven, adopted into God's family. We can draw near to God because of Jesus 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. Jesus has already drawn near to atone for our sins so that we can draw near in Christ and so that God can draw near to us. That's how the gospel transforms what David's saying. The only condition to draw near to God now is brokenness, sinfulness. And good news, we all qualify every single one of us. We are sinners by nature and by practice, and so I encourage you, I implore you, draw near to God in Christ. It's the only way you get to call him your father. Without Christ, all we get to call him is judge. Now, if that wasn't good enough news, David continues. There's another kind of nearness that David talks about in these verses. We are brought into a state of nearness, a relational, almost a familial nearness in Christ where we are part of the family of God. We bear the family name. We get baptized into that. We're in the household of God. But as we're in that household, just like in another household, you're still caring for each other. There's still special acts of nearness where we love and care and bless one another. Even in a household, God is the same way. We are in a state of nearness because of Christ, but also because of Christ. God draws near to encourage and provide and care for his people every step of the way. 
And that's what the rest of verse 149 says. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your justice now, your judgments give me life. David says, I am your child. Hear me because I'm in the household of God. I have this state of nearness. But God, I need you to draw even nearer and bring judgment for me to act on my behalf, to care for my enemies, to to wipe them out. And what does that nearness look like? Does God actually do that? I mean, we've read the passage. Do his enemies just vanish? Does God like pull a Thanos and snap and they're all turned to dust or something like that? God doesn't do that. His enemies are still there at the end of this stanza. They've always been there. But David takes a turn. He's encouraged that God is near. How does he encourage that God is near? Look at verse 151. But you are near, O Lord. How does he know that? Because all your commandments are true. David isn't judging God's nearness based on his circumstances. He's judging God's nearness based on his word. David knows that God will draw near according to his word. And sometimes that looks like incredible miracles, incredible acts of nearness. When God drops food from the sky for his people, brings water from a rock, when God heals miraculously or provides miraculously. But most often, God's nearness is very ordinary. God's nearness looks like giving us energy to wake up before the dawn to meditate on God's word. God's nearness looks like giving us wisdom and boldness to take this word and preach it to those that have not heard. God's nearness looks like giving us faith that we need to get out of bed each week and gather with the people of God to endure hardships for the sake of Christ with joy, knowing that in all things, God is at work for our good, for those who are called according to his purpose. The way that God's nearness looks most often in our life is by us drawing near. God empowering us, sanctifying us, enabling us to draw near through his word to him. As desperate as that might be, that's the evidence of God's nearness. I know some of you are thinking, you know what, that doesn't help me because there are seasons in my life, maybe even right now, where I don't see God's nearness. When I look out on my life, I see evil all around. I relate to that evil closing in, but I don't see God's nearness. I struggle to meditate on the word. I struggle to get out of bed. I struggle with the fight of faith. I've been praying for years for something, and I haven't gotten an answer. How do I see God's nearness when it doesn't look like he's near at all in my life? David helps us there too. Look at the last verse. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. What's David saying here? Lord, I've known for a long time that your word is dependable. Your word is true. When I look back on my past, even when I look at those valleys of the shadow of death, you are always with me. I see the evidence of your grace, your nearness, and that I have drawn near to you through that trial. I look back on that nearness, and I can find courage and strength, and I can know that you are still near me right now, even when I can't see it. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you, if you struggle with seeing God's nearness, look outside of yourself. Look outside of your circumstances. Look first and foremost to God's word with example after example of God's nearness to his covenant people all throughout history. His faithfulness, even when they couldn't see it, God was near. He promised to be their God and that they would be his people. And he kept his promise. Look to past nearness, past grace. Look at how God has changed you, encouraged you, 
strengthen you, even convicted you of sin that you didn't see before. Your growth and sanctification is an evidence of God's nearness. And if you can't see it yourself, ask somebody else. That's another way you can see God's nearness. Look to the people of God. Because believe it or not, God draws near to more than just us. He draws near to all of his people. And that can be a source of tremendous encouragement in tough times. I was thinking about this this week, and I've just been blown away by the evidence of God's nearness at this church. It's an incredible encouragement to me to see that God is near. Even when I can't see it in my own life, I can see it in your life. I think of the Altenhoffels recently, Kevin and Jen, who we just did the funeral for Rita the other day, but they've been caring for Rita for years, even while, while Kevin had COVID, caring for her, loving her at her bedside at the end. They were singing hymns, drawing near to God with her. I think of the other Altenhoffels, Caitlin and Jared, who also endured that. Jared even enduring this officer that died. Caitlin's continued struggles with health, and they draw near every week. I am so encouraged by their faith to draw near to God through difficult times. I think of Kristen and with her sister and her family battling cancer and death and her hunger for the word, her encouragement of others to draw near even in the midst of that difficulty. I think of the Fitches, and the Salazars over here, right? There you are, Salazars. And so many other families who've let foster kids go, who've had to say goodbye. And they're always encouraged by those agencies to, you know what, take time for yourself. Pull away. Do self-care. Instead, they draw near to God. They draw near to the church, encouraging others to draw near to God as well. That's an evidence of God's nearness. Or Josh and Brianna Schuler, how they've cared and ministered to the youth with joy, even while she's having miscarriages. Every worldly right to pull away and take time for yourself, they press in. Or Jeanette, every week, you don't even know, she's the first one here every week. I think she attends every grace group, probably, right, <laughs> by now. And she has a constant struggle with RA. Every worldly right to not get out of bed, to not do a thing, she presses in as often as she possibly can. That's an evidence of God's nearness, of God's grace. Or RJ and Andrea, I was talking to them this morning. The battles with cancer and just the sorrow that that brings, but they're still encouraged. Their first words out of their mouth this morning were, God is sovereign. Or our missionaries have had their worlds turned upside down in COVID. Some of them even going to a whole new country. Every right to be bitter. Every right to be upset with God and the church that they draw near. I could do this all day. I wish you could come with us to pastoral visits and see the continuous evidence of God's nearness every single week. If you can't see it, join a grace group. Press into the body. You will see it, even if you don't see it in your own life. And finally, ultimately, I encourage you, if you need to find evidence of God's nearness, look supremely to Christ. He is God with us, Emmanuel. He's the one that promised never to leave us or forsake us. He did everything necessary so that we can draw near to God. When you have no evidence of nearness around you, look to Jesus, the supreme evidence of God's steadfast love and nearness. Pray with David, save me, rescue me, quicken me, renew me according to your steadfast love because of Christ. I draw near to you, Father, in Christ, so please draw near to us. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your abundant goodness and grace in your life. 
I'm so thankful that you haven't left us as orphans. You've brought us into your family by making us holy in Christ. Because we are your children, you have promised to care for us. Promise that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. So, Father, we look forward to that promise. We plead based on that promise. And we trust that if we draw near to you in Christ, that you, Father, will draw near to us. Help us do that. Empower us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.